this morning does begin Holy Week, celebrated around the globe today. And so we're going to take a break from the book of Jonah because this really is the week. This is the day that the hourglass is turned over for Jesus. The earthly life and ministry of the Savior will come to a close this week. And so we reflect back on what Jesus has done. And so this morning will be a little different as we move towards the the table this morning. And so we're going to spend our time together in God's Word, mainly reflecting on the Holy Week. And so could I just begin with the question, can you imagine what must have been going through Jesus' mind as he sat on the back of a young donkey? and made his way into Jerusalem the Sunday prior to his crucifixion. Can can we just use our sanctified imaginations this morning just to try to imagine what was going through the mind of Jesus? We call this the triumphal entry. We, We call this really the victory entry. But it is of a man who is riding towards his certain death. How strange is that when you think about it? A week before the Friday of Jesus' death, Jesus approached Jerusalem, we read, and he finds himself in a little village on the outskirts of Jerusalem called Bethany. It's just to the east of Jerusalem. His, His friends live there, his dear friends People that were like family to Jesus lived in Bethany. And the people that lived there that he was close to was a man named Lazarus, a woman named Mary, and her sister named Martha. This is a man who, by the way, a few weeks prior had been dead. Like This shouldn't be lost on us that when we talk about Lazarus, we remember that this is a guy who was alive, but at one point in his life, it's strange to say that, but at one point in Lazarus' life, he didn't have any life. He was, he was expired. He was dead. So here's what we read in the book of John chapter 11. If you want to flip there, we're going to read some in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. Together, John chapter 11, we pick up in verse 38, and we're going to read through verse 53 here and then talk and then read a little bit. John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus moved again, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of If you write in your Bible, this is an interesting phrase to circle. Martha, the sister of the dead man, just so we're clear, he was dead. This is miraculous what we're reading here. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the very glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, I knew that you always heard me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And the man who had died came out. That's crazy. The man who died got up and walked out of a tomb. Like, I, goodness gracious, how, we, how do we get over this? How do we get over the fact? And unfortunately, we do sometimes. How do we get over the fact that we were dead in our sins and the Savior said, wake up, come out of your death. And many in here have and have come out of death into life. Amen. Don't get over it, church. So when you go out and you're inviting people to come worship the risen Savior on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, it is as a walking miracle who was dead, but is called out of life just like Lazarus. Lazarus come out and the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen and strips like a mummy, and his face wrapped in the cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, this is important for what we're talking about today. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. How could you not? I just want to have a conversation with the people who didn't after that. Like how, how, how could you not? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief, Pharisee, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away. Do you see it? Do you see it? The Romans will come away and take our place. For them, it was about prestige and power and money. They missed the kingdom of God. For some jingle in their pocket. What are we to do if everybody believes in Jesus? We will lose our power and authority and our influence over the nation. They'll take away our place in the nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. How right he was that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Prophetic, and he didn't even know it. It's better that one man should die for everybody than everybody die. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, from this day on, from the healing of Lazarus, they planned to put him to death. Jesus had resuscitated Lazarus. He was dead. Jesus called him to live again. I use the word resuscitation because Lazarus would go on to do what again? He'd die again. Lazarus died. Jesus brought him back to life. I know he'd been dead for a couple of days, but Lazarus would go on to die again. This was the last straw for the religious leaders in Israel. John tells us that after Jesus raised up Lazarus from that day on, they planned to kill him. The hourglass has been turned over for Jesus. Plans are being put into place. Meetings are, covert meetings are taking place. Conversations, concern. What are we to do about the prophet from Nazareth? 
What are we to do about the man who even causes the dead to live? Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Jesus resting in Bethany with his friends, with those who were dear to him. He's at the home of Simon the leper when Mary anoints him in these next verses. She doesn't know. She has no idea, but she is anointing him for his burial. She doesn't know. But Jesus does. Watch this. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Just imagine, I mean, just close your eyes. Imagine the scene. Imagine the smell. Imagine the ointment going on the feet of Jesus. The Bible tells us the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold? For 300 denarii and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared so much about the poor, the Bible tells us, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She doesn't know she's preparing Jesus for his burial, for being put in the tomb. Can you imagine? Remember we started and said, let's, let's try to imagine the feeling of Jesus. Can you imagine the weight of knowing that? Can you imagine that as Jesus reclining at the table and Mary is pouring this expensive perfume on his feet that he knows that a few short days later he is going to be nailed to the cross to cover Mary's sins? Cover Judas's sins. As the perfume pours down on the feet of the Savior, he knows. He's the only one that knows. But he knows that within days, the sweet-smelling perfume that covered his feet would be replaced by his own tears and blood. Jesus knows. He knows that the crowd of people that are around him right now, loving him and adoring him, would be replaced by another crowd, a crowd that would cry out, Barabbas! Barabbas! We'd rather have the murderer Barabbas! And then the crowd would say, crucify him! This Jesus of Nazareth, this King of the Jews, Look down at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The Gospels record that Jesus sent two of his disciples to find the donkey, this colt, and he, he rode into Jerusalem while, while the people, the crowd, spread their cloaks before him, while they put branches on the road, holding them and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of this echoes a story from the Old Testament where David anointed Solomon, and Solomon rides into Jerusalem on a colt, signifying, right? The, the story is that one of David's sons tried to steal the throne in David's old age. And so what David does is he anoints the true king. So Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey is declaring that, yes, all that is said about me is true. I am the king of the Jews. I am the king of the whole world. You have crowned false kings. Romans, Jewish Pharisees and leaders. All of the things that you have put your faith in. But Jesus riding into town on the back of a donkey declares to all of the people, I'm not what you expected, but I am the one and the true king and I wonder as Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives, this is the direction that he would have come from. I wonder if he was thinking of his friends. I, I wonder if he's thinking of, of Mary and Martha, of Lazarus and Simon the leper who had thrown him a banquet. I wonder if he came down the road as he rode down the hill just outside of Jerusalem down one hill, looking up at another hill. I wonder what he was thinking. Jesus would have passed a special place near the, the base of the Mount of Olives. If you've been there, you know the place. It's a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus would have gone right past it. And I wonder if he thought about what would take place there in only a few days. I wonder as Jesus rode by the, the garden there of olive trees if he thought about the fact that this is the place that he would be betrayed by a friend and arrested. I wonder as he rode by on a donkey as people are shouting out, Hosanna, deliver us now, God. I wonder if he thought about the fact that he'd be kneeling there under such stress and anxiety that the very capillaries under his skin would burst and he would sweat out blood. The very skin that he had created would burst because of the pressure that he was under. I wonder as he reached the valley floor where the road would turn up towards the temple mount. I wonder if he thought about another story. I wonder if he, as the people were cheering him on, many believing that he was just going to be the conquering king that, he, that they hoped he would be that would at long last, kick out the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. I wonder if Jesus thought about how the Temple Mount once had a, a very different name that it was known by. As Jesus rode the colt of a donkey towards the Temple Mount up a hill that was once called Moriah. I wonder if as people shouted out, Hosanna, if Jesus began to think about a boy named Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. You can turn over there if you'd like tells us of this story. 
hundreds of years before Jesus rode in to Jerusalem up the same path that Abraham and Isaac had once taken. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, says to Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt Offering. And if you know the story, you love verse 8. Because everyone who knows the story knows verse 8. We know how this story ends. Verse 8 says, Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, on together. Do you remember? That what happened next, that the young man carried the wood for the altar and the sacrifice up the same path, that, that, that same hill that Jesus is walking towards. But Isaac, you remember, was saved. Isaac did not taste death on that day because a substitute was found. Abraham said, God will provide for himself what? A lamb. Did he? Well, yes and no. God did provide, but on that day did not provide a lamb. You know that God provided a ram on that day. So I wonder, as Jesus on the back of this donkey, I wonder if Jesus thought to himself that not only would God provide for himself a lamb, but that God would provide himself as a lamb. Because what Abraham said to Isaac didn't fully come true on that day. God did provide, but they were still waiting on the lamb. And Jesus on the back of a donkey, going up the same path to a hill that was once called Moriah, now sat a temple where Jesus knows that he's going up the hill to become the final sacrifice. He was the substitute lamb. For all of those who are around him on that day, calling out his name, and also for you and for me as well, Hosanna, save us, deliver us, set us free. From the moment that Jesus was born just a few miles away in Bethlehem to this moment, people had been trying to kill Jesus. You can't read the New Testament and not see that at every turn, people are trying to kill Jesus. From Herod to his brothers and family in Nazareth. To the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But every time, every single time in the New Testament where somebody is trying to kill Jesus, do you, you, you almost always read this, this phrase. But he slipped away. Because his time had not come. And this entry into Jerusalem was different. It, it was triumphant. 
But it was triumphant not because he came to rule, not because he came to save the people, deliver the people, free the people, at least not in the way that we all hoped that he would. No, no, this entry to Jerusalem was triumphant because Jesus this time would not slip away. Jesus came to die. So later in the week, Jesus would gather with his friends to celebrate the Passover. And what we're going to do in moments is a reflection of that meal. The last Passover he would experience with them. The last meal he would have before his crucifixion. In a few moments, we're going to do the same. We're going to take bread. We're going to take the cup. And we do so, and we remember all that Jesus went through for us. And we remember that the lamb that was promised all the way in Genesis has been provided for you and for me. The picture of the Passover when the Old Covenant, when they would have the Passover meal as a remembrance, they they would remember the night. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living as a slave in Egypt? Can you imagine Moses showing up, gathering the people and saying, listen, very carefully. This is so important, not just for you, but for your family's sake. Don't miss this. This is not a joke. This is not a drill. This is real. We're talking salvation here. Deliverance for you and your family. Moses probably would have said, Dads, if you love your children, pay attention to what I'm going to say to you. Moms, if you love your homes, your people, your children, those who are living there, pay attention to what I say to you. I don't want you to miss this. They would remember the night when they would put blood over the doorpost of their homes. And they would remember that God passed over. And they would remember that God did not bring judgment on their home. But not because they didn't deserve judgment. The reality is their hearts were just as stained as the Egyptians. So were ours. But God passed over, not because they didn't deserve it, but God passed over because of the blood of the Lamb. And they would remember. And they would gather to share in the Passover meal. And they would remember, this is what our God has done. This is how our God saves. And every time they did, they would remember that their God Yahweh saves not through might, not through militaries. God saves through the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. And this is the story they would tell each other. And this is the story they would teach their children. And this act, this communion table, the Passover meal, was central in the life of Israel for all of their history. Every time they celebrated the Passover meal, they would declare it. But not only that, can you imagine that every time when they finally got to where they were going, right? When the, when the descendants of those who left Egypt finally got into the promised land and they built new homes for the first time and weren't living in tents, 
Can you imagine a, a man and his sons building a doorpost for their home, putting up and hanging the door? Can you remember? Can you imagine the conversations? My son, we're here, and here's why we're here. Because my mom and my dad believed that God would deliver if they would paint blood over the door. Kids would say, Dad, tell me more. Mom, tell me more. And they would remind their children, we're only here because of the blood of the Lamb and because God decided to pass over. Paul taught the first generation of Christians, one of the very first churches in history, in his letter to the Corinthians. I want to read this to you. I think this is significant, and I don't think we often enough reflect on all of the words that Paul said here. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I just want to read a couple of verses, and you can just listen along. You can turn if you want. But verse 23, here's what Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And usually we stop here. But Paul continued because the message to the Corinthian church was very, very important. He says, For as often as you eat the bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is serious. We do not come to the table casually or flippantly. There is something other about taking the bread and taking the cup and remembering the death of the Lamb. Paul continues, and this, this is why this is so serious. We can't get into this today, and I don't even know what I'd tell you if I'm honest. Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Like, it's so serious. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul tells the church that in the earliest days of the church, there were people in their congregation who had gotten sick and died because they came to the table in an unworthy manner. This, friends, is so very important to us today. I just never want us to be flippant when we come to the table. In the earliest days of the church, in the earliest days of the church, just as the Passover was central in the body of Israel, in the earliest days of the church, it wasn't the pulpit that was central in the church. It wasn't the musical worship that was central in the church. It wasn't Sunday school, life groups, Christian education that was central in the church. All good, godly, God-honoring things when used appropriately to honor and glorify King Jesus. 
But you know what was central in the church at the very beginning? It's the table. Because everything to the early believers was about the sacrifice of Jesus. And they wouldn't let themselves go a single meal without remembering and reminding each other of what Christ has done. The table of Christ is called many different things. And depending on the church tradition that you come from, you just reflect on what you've heard it called in the past. Many call it the Lord's Supper. Right? I don't know why not just Jesus' Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper. Many call it communion. Many call it, somebody help me, shout it out, the Eucharist. The Eucharist, which for those of us who have grown up in Baptist life, when we hear the term Eucharist, oftentimes we think, oh, that sounds very high church. That sounds very Catholic. That sounds different. Like, I'm not used to that. Do you know what Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. The Eucharist is the Thanksgiving meal. Not turkey and dressing and yams and cranberry sauce. You won't find pecan pie. Green bean casserole or creamed corn. You'll find the bread and the wine. The real Thanksgiving meal. No pun intended here, but the central thing for Central Baptist Church should be the remembering of Jesus. The central thing for us should be the body, should be the blood, not just in our songs not just in our preaching, but in our lives. So let's just take a few moments right now, everyone, individually, just bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And can we just sit in complete silence, which I know can feel awkward at times in a church setting to sit quietly. But let's just reflect individually. Let's think of the price that Jesus paid and give him thanks for it. Let's reflect on his sacrifice this morning. Not just the cross, but all of the moments leading up to it.
Let's reflect this morning on the gulf that was far too wide for any of us to bridge. And let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, before we even come to the table this morning, we give thanks to you. We recognize that on this week, we honor your sacrifice. Heavenly Father, you sacrificed your only begotten Son. You sent Jesus for us. And the words, thank you, just don't seem enough. Oh God, but from the very core of our being, from the depths of our spirit and soul this morning, we say thank you. Thank you that Jesus was willing to climb the hill Thank you that you tell us in your word that the one who knew no sin became sin on my behalf, that I might become a son. Oh God, we thank you. We bless your name. Help us to treat this moment as holy and set apart in our lives and as central in our lives as you intended it to be. In Jesus' name.